0: Come back, come back, come back, come back my time. I'm here with a fellow Detroit veteran, Jeffrey Sachs, who has been on with us before, but is one of the real leading lights all around the world and has been for many years. I always pay tribute to my good friends the Romels, because when I was an undergraduate at MIT, they turned me on to this brilliant graduate student who was a friend of their family, and uh, and I've kept track ever since. At any rate, Jeff uh, is the director of the Institute for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, and he's also the head of a Sustainable Development Solutions program or initiative at the United Nations. Jeff, thanks for being with me again.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you. And... Uh... Yes, uh, fun to uh, uh, be fellow Detroiters. Very important. Yeah. Oh,
0: it's, what I always say is we were canaries in the coal mine because as children, we got to see a cauldron of unsustainability. I always tell the joke that when I got to MIT, I took my first economics course. And the guy, it was in microeconomics, the guy starts talking about equilibrium. I raised my hand. I was not trying to be a <laughs> jerk. And I said, isn't that like assuming a happy ending? because we had gone through the, you know, the race riots, the stress forces, anti-war movement, all these things. And Detroit was a cauldron. And a lot, I think of, of both of our parents' friends were under the pressure of the decline of Detroit somewhat after 1970. And, uh, we saw what you might call, uh, diseases of despair in an earlier incarnation. And, uh, so I think now there's a whole lot of stress. Maybe that's why you have such a clear vision is that your training from the streets of Detroit to set you on the right course. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about a number of things. I, recently, I saw you on the BBC talking about U.S.-China relations and took quite a bit of issue with how it was being framed and I know you've written pieces. Project Syndicate in February was an extraordinary piece. We are turning a corner. Climate change is now in everyone's awareness. It can't be done without U.S. and Chinese collaboration, but I think you're— let's talk about what you think is mischaracterized in the potential for U.S. and China to work together. I I think the basic
1: point is we need uh... A world in which cooperation is, uh, is is the dominant mode, whether that's to fight a pandemic, or to fight climate change, or to uh, promote uh, uh, development, uh, we can't do this in a divided world. And yet the tensions between the U.S. and China have been rising, I think, dangerously so, and I believe unnecessarily so. So that puts me uh, a bit uh, at odds with uh, a lot of people in the United States, I would say most of the political class at this point, which takes it more or less for granted that China's an enemy. Uh, At best, uh, we'll have harsh competitive relations, could get worse. I view all of that uh, as wrong-spirited, wrong-headed, bad analysis. Uh, contrary to my own eyes and ears uh, over the past 40 years. I've been going to China since 1981, uh, typically a couple of times a year at at a minimum, uh, often several times a year. I've been all over uh, China for uh, decades, uh, visiting remote areas, visiting Western China, uh, Xinjiang, visiting Tibet, visiting uh, Yunnan, visiting the coastal regions. Uh, and I do not see China as the enemy. I do not see China as the hostile force uh, out to undermine U.S. well-being, which is actually even taken as an article of faith in our formal foreign policy documents that China is out to undermine uh, the United States and undermine the world. I think that this is a absolutely uh, dangerous perspective. And by the way, uh, if you believe it, the solution is sit down and negotiate and talk to the other side and solve problems. But not this kind of name calling, uh, shouting through the press. Uh, of course, it was even more insane when we had a president on Twitter, uh, because. Uh, we should not have politicians on Twitter. I'm not sure we should have Twitter at all, frankly, but uh, we should not be doing foreign policy by tweets. We should be discussing, solving, brainstorming, presenting evidence, uh, analyzing, but not just name-calling, uh, unilateral uh, sanctions, attacking Chinese companies, Warning, as our officials do everywhere in the world, don't you dare buy from Huawei. Uh, This will cause great damage to your relations with the United States. We're making threats all over the world that aim to uh, really uh, stop China's uh, continued economic and technological development. I think it's disgusting and stupid, frankly. That's those are those are the two adjectives that I would would use. They do not comport with our well being, with our national needs, and certainly not with the world's needs. That's what I called out. Uh, there aren't too many voices in the United States, unfortunately, uh, calling for balance. We have both political parties uh, that are anti-China, the Biden administration, just about every time it opens its mouth about China is negative. Uh, it, Trump was crazy, so that was erratic. Uh, but Biden is not positive, not even neutral, and not so far saying, let's sit down and negotiate. Uh, in fact, the, the formal position is we're not going to have a strategic dialogue with China. Uh, because we can't trust them, and uh, we don't come out well in such strategic discussions. That's always a mistake. Uh, you know, President Kennedy said, uh, uh, let us uh, never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. That is the right position, uh, and the position is sit down and talk, because so much is a misunderstanding, so much is biased thinking, so much is lack of perspective that uh, unless we talk we can't understand each other and we can't solve problems.
0: Yeah I sense that there what you might call echoes hangover habit structure from the Cold War where the United States and Soviet Union had very different ideas for the structure of a system and we're usually what what might call dusting off that playbook and bringing it back out. But you yourself said in uh, your Project Syndic article, I recall, look at Xi Jinping's speeches at the World Economic Forum. He's not talking about an alternative system to market, how do I say, market capitalism, or, or I guess there's different things related to state ownership and others, but he's talking about participating in a globalized market system. Yeah, and I think what, he, what he's talking about, by the way, most
1: importantly, is a, is a multilateral system of international law. So even before we get to the specifics of economic institutions, we have a UN Charter, we have a Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Let's use those instruments as our guiding principles and let's operate within a multilateral framework. Now, uh, Xi Jinping says that's what they want to do, I would put it to the test. The US is the one that walked out of all the agreements that doesn't uh, abide by international agreements. We're the one that say, no, no, we're not gonna be part of the International Criminal Court. Uh, We're the one that that is uh, not uh, a party to uh, convention on biological diversity. We're not a signatory of the international covenant of economic, social, and cultural rights. There are so many parts of international law that we don't uh, abide by because a lot of uh, United States action really is in the kind of Trump mindset he put it, you know, vulgarly and crudely, but it is uh, no one's going to tell us what to do, uh, not the UN, not anyone else, as, as if law uh, is uh, some kind of punishment. Well, if you think that you're almighty, then you say, I don't want to be constrained by international law. Uh, And that has been a a US view of the US right wing for a long time. But I think China actually wants international law because they see that with international law, they wouldn't be held back. They they would be responsible for their own development. I think that they are proud and believers that uh, if they have an international rule of law, they're going to thrive. I think that's true too. It's a very talented nation, a great civilization, a great history, a lot of catching up to do because of the horrible period under European and Japanese imperial pressure and war. So China's catching up, good, That's what I would like to see in the world, countries uh, overcoming a a sorrowful past history that had a lot to do with the imperial uh, dominance, uh, which was the 19th and 20th century experience uh, up until uh, the mid-century of uh, the 20th century after World War II. And That's not pernicious. That's not against U.S. interests. But it is pro-China interest. Uh, And my feeling is that's great. Uh, I want to see China develop. But American policymakers are, you know, they're horrified. Oh, they'd be bigger than us. Well, yeah, they have four times the population. So of course, uh, China would be bigger than us. Oh, they would catch up in technology. Yeah, why not? capable uh, people investing heavily in research and development. The idea that that necessarily diminishes the United States uh, is uh, the kind of dangerous uh, uh, zero-sum thinking that will get us into a lot of trouble if we persist in that. And you're right, Rob, that the playbook is the Cold War. And there is a reading of the Cold War that, God, didn't we do great? You know, we went toe to toe with the Soviet Union and they ended up collapsing. That's not how I read the Cold War. I read the Cold War as strongly unnecessary, extraordinarily dangerous, almost brought the world to annihilation. Annihilation, I'm not using the term. Uh, casually, and uh, something that we should be trying to avoid uh, desperately, not to go back to that kind of danger which existed uh, in that time.
0: I'll cite my acquaintance and recently uh, partner in making a video, Daniel Ellsberg, whose book The Doomsday Machine talks about not just the bilateral conflict but the burning of the upper atmosphere and the nuclear winter that can destroy, basically turn us into an ice age and destroy the food sources all over the earth.
1: No, no, one, has, uh, no, no one has been more vivid, more correct, uh, more perspicacious than Daniel Ellsberg about these risks. That's a phenomenal book, uh, The Doomsday Machine, but it's uh, based on a phenomenal history. He was assigned, uh, as you know very well, uh, as, as a RAND officer after uh, you know, being a brilliant uh, student in the first days of game theory uh, it, at Harvard, uh, he was assigned to uh, look at nuclear policy of the United States, and he came to the horrifying realization <laughs> that we had a finger on not only on the button, but on the button that would destroy the whole world, Uh, and that our doctrine was uh, just about any accident could trigger a full-scale nuclear attack that by U.S. intelligence estimates would take out 700 million people or so because it was going to be an attack to destroy the Soviet Union and China. Even if China wasn't directly involved, why not? Uh, We should target them as well. And then, as usual, with the idiocy of our intelligence agencies, they didn't understand any of the atmospheric dynamics and the physics that would have ended our lives, too. So they had this idea, yeah, we'll go kill 700 million people. Why not? Uh, And uh, then America will thrive. Uh, instead of then we'll all die together. So that's what Ellsberg realized, uh, and uh, as, as uh, readers of that book learn, because it's a it's stunningly interesting book, he was going to reveal this too, but never got around to it uh, after the Pentagon Papers, because when he buried the secret documents uh, of, of uh, about the nuclear policy, they ended up in a in an avalanche, a local avalanche, and probably in a waste dump or something else, but he never was able to recover the documents and ended up writing about them. And I, I actually want to go back to the opening of this interview. He's another great Detroiter, so we should remember that's that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Went to Cranbrook.
0: And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, I've talked about that. Uh, you know, Daniel uh, is fascinating because I think the story was that his brother buried the documents. They went with the Pentagon Papers first, even though he thought this was really the challenge that he had to post. And the brother, when people were snooping around and investigating, got out and buried things in what became a condominium development. And with all the landfill, they lost all the papers. But Yes, uh, and, that's, and that's a heavy
1: rain washed away the papers, apparently, so the brother or brother-in-law was out there digging, trying to find these crucial documents, which they never recovered. Never found <laughs> them, never yeah. found them.
0: But, uh, but you know, Ellsberg's, uh, I, I had a, a very fortunate experience. When I was at MIT, I'd pretty much finished my undergraduate work. So I took a lot of the graduate courses in arms control and disarmament, an application to Game 30, but Bill Kaufman, George Rathens, George Arena were my advisors. And I was a TA once for Bill Kaufman, who uh, put me in a cubicle. And one day he walked in, and and he said, you know, I never told you this, but you're sitting in Daniel Ellsberg's desk. And uh, (laughs) apparently that's where he'd been when he had that uh, experience. As the Pentagon Papers were being released, he was a fellow at MIT for a short period of time.
1: You know, I, I started Harvard College in the fall of 72, and in those days, I don't know if it's true today. We were given a list of books to read uh, before coming uh, to the college, and then uh, uh, faculty would give lectures to the students during the uh, the, the freshman week. And one of the books uh, we were asked to read was uh, "Papers on the War" by Ellsberg. And in that book, uh, I think 1970 or 71, he has an essay called uh, "The" quagmire myth and the stalemate machine which is the single best analysis of the Vietnam debacle that anyone has written it's a astounding uh, essay and and the the point of the essay was that Lyndon Johnson knew uh, of course that uh Vietnam wasn't a, an unexpected quagmire it was hopeless, and it was a stalemate, and it meant hundreds of thousands of U.S. kids uh, in the Vietnamese uh, jungle and Delta, uh, and many dying, and Johnson knew it was all hopeless. But as Ellsberg explained, the goal was just don't surrender past the next election, but there's always a next election, and so it was really the stalemate machine. And so Ellsberg showed a, a mode of thinking about foreign policy that start, started from the realization that our government lies, lies repeatedly, lies uh, uh, recklessly, lies deliberately, lies provably. Lyndon Johnson was an inveterate liar. Uh, and uh, there are many tapes, of course, that it, where he explains openly to uh, Richard Long and to others uh, yeah we can't win this thing i know that damn well but you know i'm not going to get out because of uh, what what this would mean for for national politics and we need really to get behind, beyond this kind of governance where it's based on lies because it's not a game it it may seem like a very clever game to politicians but the whole planet depends on us solving problems and that's true with China today. We need to sit down, analyze together, and work out solutions, not play games. Yes.
0: Well, I'll, I'll reach to another friend of mine, uh, Orville Schell, who wrote a book years, a few years back called Wealth and Power with John Dury. And in that book, he went to the same place as you did, the Opium War, the Japanese invasion. And the woundedness of a national identity and the recovery of that, that, he, as he said, many people in China will suppress their individuality if they think they are contributing to erasing, what you might call or eradicating, that dark period of shame. At the same time, he talked about the United States with its kind of big muscles, Cold War mindset, and wanting everyone to fold in and conform to their system and he predicted that this would be a very rugged experience this collaboration cooperation that both i think you and i see as necessary right now now i want to bring one other piece one other ingredient it's it's very interesting rob if i might just say that
1: it it shows the the very long shadow of history and of culture Uh, and how it operates in ways we don't even understand, but it affects mindsets and perceptions of the world. Both stories in in some way go back actually to the 15th century. Uh, In China, China made, I think, the single worst economic policy mistake in the history of civilization. In 1434, when uh, the uh, mandarins uh, in the Ming Uh, Empire, decided to scrap the uh, naval fleet uh, of uh, the famous uh, Admiral, uh, Admiral Zheng He, uh, which at that point in the 1420s and 1430s was uh, traversing the Indian Ocean, long-distance trade, great navigation capacity—they would have discovered the Americas also, I was either say, around Christopher the Christopher Columbus of... would
0: have been a small potato. In that, exactly, in that <laughs> you know, it could have
1: happened in the Pacific Ocean, Pacific Rim. It could have uh, happened uh, around the Cape of Good Hope, but they scrapped it all. China really suffered heavily because of that, and then. It, to, to, to skip over several centuries quickly, by the time the 19th century came around, China didn't realize what was happening with the Scientific Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, and uh, the British Empire just did beat the heck out of them uh, in the Opium Wars. And from 1839 to 1949, 110 years, it was disaster for China. Uh, it, of every kind, uh, the Taiping uh, uh, Rebellion, uh, the Boxer Rebellion, uh, the extraterritorial treaties, uh, the warlord period, the Japanese invasion, the Civil War. So by the time the PRC uh, uh, was proclaimed uh, in 1949, China was an impoverished wreckage and shell of itself. What had been the great leader of civilization was desperately, desperately impoverished. That's the China mindset. Never let that happen again. Perfectly understandable mindset. Now, I think our mindset is formed in a very different way that starts in the 15th century. Uh, England started uh, its its imperial uh, escapades. started in Wales, in Scotland, in Ireland, and in a way, the the English just went on fighting (laughs) and won wars uh, for centuries. Uh, And so, the English mindset is uh, continue to conquer until you have an empire on which the sun never sets. And and that was achieved by the 19th century. It gave the uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant Spirit, the sense that this was a a, a destiny, and it was transferred to uh, the Anglo-American uh, manifest destiny of our own continent. And as soon as uh, the wars of extermination and genocide uh, were completed in the United States against native populations, that Anglo-American vision spilled out into empire the same way uh, in in the Caribbean, in the Philippines. Uh, in China. Uh, and we've gone on building that empire. Uh, World War II was the uh, moment where the Bataan was passed from the British Empire to the American Empire. But this is a mindset that still pervades uh, American thinking. Uh, it's the myth, the, the founding myth of our country that our manifest destiny is also a global destiny. And this is what we're meeting with China right now, uh, two long shadows of history. Uh, And we need to understand each other, not fight with each other. And if we understand each other, we will inhabit uh, this small world together much better and peacefully. And that's where I think history and understanding and culture could play a huge role.
0: I'm always reminded of a book by a Native American who had a westernized name, Jack Forbes, called Columbus and Cannibals. Yeah, yeah. He cited what he called a disease called Wetico, which is a, a mindset that is poisonous, fueled by fear, fueled by greed, and led to the devastation of environments, indigenous peoples, and that outreach towards empire as a, as a compulsion. And done in a self-righteous manner, but... I uh, I think that, you know, there, there's a funny kind of blind spot that I saw you take on, on that BBC program, which is a lot of people in the United States say China is an authoritarian country and they don't treat people right. And in some regions, there's pretty good evidence for that. And you said... Yeah, but what about how the United States treats people like African-Americans and runs its prison systems and all the kind of things that we're not in a place where, what you might call, uh, we're going to go save the world unless we change how we practice what we preach ourselves. And I, I thought you're standing up to that mind frame really. Created quite a luster, quite a momentum in that conversation of BBC. I I,
1: I have a uh, a foreign policy doctrine I call Jesus Jesus's foreign policy, uh, because uh, in the in the gospel, uh, of course, Jesus famously says, uh, "Why do you point to the mote in the other's eye when you have the beam in your own eye?" And what Jesus is doing in the Gospels uh, is explaining basically uh, how how not to judge in the wrong way uh and he uh, is saying you better take care of your own uh base your own ethics uh in order to be able to uh, be ethical with regard to others as well and we have of course a terrible blind spot here the united states uh has uh you know, walked out of the Paris Climate Agreement under Trump, walked out of the World Health Organization under Trump, walked out of UNESCO, uh, cut aid, behaved atrociously, uh, imposed unilateral sanctions. That's all abroad, not to mention all of the uh, civil rights and human rights violations at home. And the first thing we do uh, when uh, when the Biden administration comes in is point the finger at them even in the shadow of the insurrection that we had on january 6th well that's that's not how to behave uh, how we should behave anyway with a new administration is to meet and say let's hope for good cooperation uh, and uh, that we can come to uh, mutually beneficial understandings that's how you greet someone anyway as a civilized human being. But in Alaska, we did just the opposite. We opened first words. What about Xinjiang? What about Hong Kong? What about Taiwan? Uh, Fighting words, the very first moment of interchange as if the United States didn't have a lot of explaining to do about having a weird psychopathic president over the preceding four years, and can we pick up the pieces to get something normal going again? So this this is my, my basic point, which is, you know, we need to behave in a civilized way so that we can have a civilized relationship with other countries. And in a nuclear-armed world, it's insane to do
0: otherwise. I want to make a, uh, a little bit of a pitch. I used to be, for many years, an ad, a, uh, adjunct professor at Union Theological Seminary and taught a course on economics and theology. And they have a continuing education course called Union Beyond. And one of their professors, Aubrey Hendricks, is writing, or excuse me, is Conducting and Teaching the Political Economy in the Kingdom of God. As there in, you go. The <laughs> Correspondence Course, and it's uh, all kinds of stuff. He's written a book that I remember looking at years ago, The Politics of Jesus, Rediscovering the True Revolutionary Nature, and how it's been corrupted. And then he talks all about the politics of Jesus, just... Uh, as I'm not surprised because I've, I've seen you in the halls of the Vatican. I've seen the things you're exploring on what you might call framing the relationship between economic theory and the deeper moral teachings. Well, than- you know,
1: I, I, I do think, uh, as you know, uh, what Pope Francis uh, is, is telling us is extremely pertinent uh, for us. He's written two wonderful encyclicals uh, one called Laudato Si, which is about climate change uh, and about environmental destruction. And he, he says, you know, do not destroy creation. We depend on it. We are a part of uh, of of this world, and nature doesn't forgive. It will kick back very hard. And then he wrote a second encyclical called Fratelli Tutti, a Brotherhood of All, or Brotherhood and Sisterhood of All, properly translated. And it's, it's really a perfect uh, accompaniment to the sustainable development encyclical because it's about encounter with others. So it's framed around the good Samaritan, who helps the person in the road. Uh, and it's basically wisdom, pastoral wisdom of how to get along in this world. Uh, and I think that that is part of ancient uh, truths. Of course, the ancient world also had its nonstop wars and genocides. So it's it's not as if they knew necessarily better. But the teachings of how to get along we can remember as ex- being extraordinarily important. And Pope Francis is basically saying right now, we need a world that recognizes its interdependence. We need actually, he says, we need a plan for our common home and he's absolutely right about that.
0: Let me come back a little bit to the dynamic between the United States and China. I've worked quite a bit in China starting around 1990 and ran the Quantum Emerging Growth Fund. Uh, Non-Japan Asia portfolio was my focus. I've been going there for many years and many of the trusted people, I've never met Xi Jinping, but many of the high level people I have met repeatedly And they say one thing to me, (coughs) after Donald Trump came into office, we had China 2025 and there are concerns about property rights or access to our financial markets. And we understand all those things. But what we don't understand is why we are being blamed for the American leadership, not just under Trump, but before that, engaging in globalization. When we're a very large country that had, at the starting gate, a per capita income, roughly one-fortieth of the American per capita income. And the Americans did nothing for their own people in the transformation, in the adjustment assistance, in the retraining and reallocation. And the winners got their taxes cut, got to keep their money offshore, exacerbated class divisions. And... We were powerless to do anything about that, and now we're being blamed for that. And I think I didn't have anything to say,
1: but but yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, point. You know, I think broadly speaking, uh, the notion in any event that uh, China is somehow a source of major US social ills is trumped up, if I could put it that way, uh, wildly. Uh, But I would say more than that. There is a a point which is true, that as trade with China expanded, there were places in the United States, in the Midwest, uh, I think predominantly, that uh, did lose jobs to the import competition from China. And it's the first It's the second lesson of trade, because I used to teach trade uh, at Harvard. Uh, It's the second lesson of trade theory, that trade expands the pie. That's the first lesson. But the second lesson is it doesn't necessarily distribute it uh, the way that uh, you would want it distributed. There can be absolute losers and uh, more than uh, fair winners. But the theorem that Paul Samuelson, uh, the the great economist, proved about trade uh, already uh, about 80 years ago uh, is that the winners can compensate the losers uh, so that everybody can be made better off. That's what you teach in trade theory, that look, the the pie is going to grow, ah, but the slices of the pie could really leave some people short. But it's possible that those that are getting the huge slice of the pie, eh, they could share something so everybody's slice is bigger than it was without trade. Well, we didn't have that at all because our society, our politics, our political economy since Reagan was so anti-social democratic, so anti-sharing, that losers were losers. Uh, in, in the moral way, not only in the financial way. Hey, if if you lost, tough for you. You must be a loser. Uh, and Trump was, of course, the uh, you know the most extreme uh, weird expositor because for him there are killers and they are losers. Uh, so when Trump came in, the only thing he really did uh, was uh, cut taxes for the rich uh, even more. But you know, what he uh, what he claimed that he was going to do was uh, reverse the trade with China and that that would bring back some jobs. And I think that was a part of his success in 2016 elections because he carried by a sliver those swing uh, industrial states in the Midwest, and that's what put him into the White House. The truth is that's not where... The jobs were really lost. The jobs were lost to automation, to technology, and so forth. Those are not jobs coming back. So it was all based on uh, you know, a, a, a phony economic or false economic perception. But even if it were true, the right way to handle an issue of inequality is through US redistribution rather than closing down global trade. You close down global trade, everybody loses. You redistribute, then the winners help to compensate the losers. But that's a mindset that America doesn't have because we're lacking that discourse in American political economy that winners should help losers. Uh, in, in in the American mindset, and it's a pretty complicated cultural mindset, it goes back to John Locke, it goes back to the Puritans, uh, it goes back to the prosperity gospel. Uh, it goes back to the racism. The mindset is if you lose, that's pretty tough, uh, but you're probably a loser. Uh, and uh, if you're depending on somebody else's help, you're really a loser. Uh, so that's an American view, which is quite distinctive in our culture. Uh, really pernicious, but it feeds into the China question, because the Chinese leaders can't really understand, well, if you have some people that need help, why aren't you giving them help? Why are you blaming us, just just like you said? And they're right. The truth is that cooperation, that's been a mutual gain, but not an equally shared gain. And China doesn't face the same thing vis-a-vis Europe, because in Europe, I would say the social democratic ethos is pretty pervasive. It's not the American ethos that if you, if you lose, that's your tough luck. It is much more, somebody will come to help you pick up and you certainly won't lose your health benefits because those are for everybody. Yeah,
0: I, it's fascinating. I, you're bringing back all kinds of readings. As I mentioned, I was an undergraduate at MIT and I took History of Thought with Paul Samuelson.
1: Okay,
0: uh, there you go. He wrote and he made a lot of that economic thought. (laughs) Yeah, but he made a lot of um, what I'll put late papers that were like asterisks because he could see what was happening, particularly as US and Japan pressures and the pressures on the auto industry were emerging. Right after he got the Nobel Prize, I think he was intended to give a speech on international trade and it had to be postponed till the next year, but he gave a speech that was about that we do not compensate the losers, and it could exacerbate social unsustainability, as we now call it. Uh, He also wrote about the implications in a world of changing technology, that the winners get what you might call the cash to go invest in technology and the dynamics can create a place where, in the first allocation, you might have been better off, but in the long run, you might have been a loser if you didn't do the proper transformational prop. He
1: he was very unhappy that uh, there was a kind of uh, grandiosity and simplification by the free trade advocates in the U.S., including academics, uh, that said, free trade is great, leave it at that. and Samuelson in 1941, wrote a I think it was 41 uh, wrote a paper uh, that became known as the Stolper-Samuelson theorem, and the Stolper-Samuelson theorem showed how you could have absolute losers from trade in a context where trade was making a bigger economy. Just what I was mentioning earlier. So he was the formal author of uh, the the models that displayed why you need internal redistribution. His answer was, don't stop trade, but make sure that you take care of everybody. And uh, a lot of uh, free trade proponents uh, failed to add the proviso, take care of everybody, and then the trade opponents failed to understand the benefits of trade. So, a lot of people that are I'm politically sympathetic with, uh, say, on, on the left or center-left, are anti-trade, but they don't understand that's not really the right way to proceed. We wanted an integrated, cooperative world, but we want to take care of everybody. So, it's more open trade plus social democracy. That's the
0: Scandinavian vision of this. I think it works the best. Yes. Well I'll tell you, I, I found this paper Samuelson wrote. It's called International Trade for a Rich Country, delivered to the Swedish American Chamber of Commerce in New York City, May tenth of nineteen seventy two. And I think you're gonna get a kick out of the quote. Samuelson says, why is it harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle? There must be a reason, and I suppose that reason is better known to Europeans who have had to put up with American tourists for a century than to Americans themselves. Affluence breeds self-confidence, even to the point of arrogance. As Samuel Butler said, there was always a certain... Lack of amiability about the go-getter, <laughs> and I had oh my a, god, who uh, could who could write like man. Samuelson? By the oh, way, oh man, I uh, know, and I I had an experience that resonates with everything that you've been saying about U.S. versus Europe. Uh, there was a gentleman named Leif Progratsky who ran the consulate I, for Sweden. I, I know Leif very well. And I've known Leif because I was involved in the Swedish devaluation when I worked for Soros in 1992. And he and I have worked together ever since. And Leif brought me to a meeting where a bunch of Swedish economists said they wanted INET to consider something. That forever the European model had been considered sclerotic. And the American model of deregulating the supply side to reallocate factors of production was viewed as dynamic in the growth model that should be emulated. And they said to me, given automation and given globalization, and given that Donald Trump is now president, this was 2019 January, what what we see is that a Swede says, I love the robots because it increases that production possibility frontier, the envelope of possibility, and I am confident that I will get retraining, my health insurance, my pension, and my children's education. So I wanna be part of the dynamic. In America, you're breaking down. That was the punchline of yeah, the, that's fa- what fa- leaf wanted me to hear. But, but by the way, the, the Swedish model
1: was really always based on that idea that uh, we shouldn't resist Actually, uh, productivity increases, new technologies, international trade, because everyone will get taken care of. So that bigger pie will end up more vacation time, more leisure time, better health care. So they've been on that theme for for a long time. And it's really true that today uh, you get the anti-trade or anti-technology reaction if you don't have a system that shares, because then it really is a fight. Uh, of losers against winners, and you just end up with
0: social struggle. Well, and I, going back to the echoes of our time in Detroit, I've seen an awful lot of what I'll call otherness. A man named Arjun Jyadov and I wrote a paper once where we looked at regional variations in economic activity and particularly places that were being plundered by austere state and local budgets, automation or import penetration that was new. It was a time of adjustment. And what we saw was survey evidence indicating that these shocks created despair. And what we saw in lockstep was indicators of racial animosity went up with economic despair. So we created what you might call an otherness that promoted a dysfunction, which Peter Temin has written about in his book on the vanishing middle class, where we stopped the rungs in the ladder of the education system because we became so divisive about not educating those others. And so I went back to the Swedes and I said, well, maybe it's because you're more racial, ethnically homogeneous, that you can do this and take care of each other. We have a very big challenge to overcome based on the, what I'll call the scar tissue of my formative years in Detroit and what I see going around around the nation. You know what his answer to me was? You might be right, but if you don't overcome that scar tissue, the prevailing model will be China because they know how to use the state to make these transfers yeah that's very interesting I'm just saying and of course it was a,
1: it was a swede Gunnar Myrdal who uh, came to the U.S. in 1946 uh, to tell us about the racial uh, challenge that needed to be overcome in his book the American dilemma uh, and uh, they're still trying to teach us about that yes
0: well when you look we, we've been focusing on the dynamics and uh, among economies that want to participate Where do you see Russia these days? Are they also aspiring to join or are the echoes of polarity from the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia uh, overpowering and getting in the way of those possibilities?
1: Russia really uh, sadly lost uh, its most important opportunity uh, already back in the 1990s uh, and of course uh, there's never an end to the hope for a new approach but th- the biggest problem in Russia in in my view is that uh, though the talents and education uh, are really very strong Russia went the way of a petrostate uh, already in the 1990s you know after the end of the Soviet Union uh, they had uh, essentially uh, a a lot of uh, scientists and engineers and capacity that had all been locked up in the military-industrial complex of the Soviet Union. And the most important thing for Russia uh, should have been to uh, mobilize that knowledge and technology and industrial capacity for civilian purposes and especially integrated with Europe and I always thought that uh, this was the opportunity for Europe and and Ru- for Russia in particular to upgrade, for example, its uh, you know civil aviation. That it could probably keep alive uh, civil aviation, but it couldn't do it uh, if unless it was teamed up somehow with Airbus or teamed up with uh, uh, German uh, industrial uh, quality and so forth, because there were very significant gaps that came from the complete militarization of technology and scientific expertise for decades in the Soviet period. But instead, what happened was uh, oil and gas became uh, the guiding force of the Russian economy. Uh, Gazprom became the central enterprise, uh, uh, and, and a number of uh, oil companies The fight with the oligarchs uh, who would own the oil and the gas became the uh, the dominant political motif. Uh, the easy money from these massive uh, fossil fuel rents uh, became, uh, you know, the the uh, mechanisms of corruption and the mechanisms of state power. Not unique to Russia. I wrote about the resource curse. Uh, a long time ago and uh, Russia suffered it we suffered it also by the way we we did suffer it but it, they, all, they much, also called
0: it the dutch disease in it some it was places. the dutch
1: disease uh, and uh, it 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 meant that you choo- you chose the rents uh not the uh, innovation the hard work and the uh, financial and human investment and russia went that way putin i i well of course There are many things to say about foreign policy, but things really got off track, Uh, and uh, the U.S. was not helpful as usual. Uh, The uh, political dynamics in Russia were not helpful. Uh, But really, by 2008, cooperation had collapsed. The U.S., I think, did a dreadful thing, inviting Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, back in 2008, and Georgia to join NATO. Uh, That would be something like uh, China uh, proposing to Mexico a military alliance. Uh, The United States would not say, oh, well, that's Mexico's choice. Uh, That would be uh, casus belli, uh, and it was uh, in uh, the Russian context. The U.S. was completely stupid and irresponsible uh, to try to push uh, NATO right up uh, against uh, Russia's uh, borders in that way. They had done it already in the Baltics, but that's small states and with a very different history. But Ukraine, think of Russia's whole history. The, the Ukraine was the, the buffer against uh, the European armies uh, coming to invade Russia, uh, whether it was Napoleon or Hitler uh, or uh, so many other perceptions. And this led to uh, a, a complete breakdown of uh, normal relations. And that's where we are till today right now. So Russia did not modernize uh, a civilian high-tech economy, even though it's filled with talented people. Uh, oil is no longer much of a, a pillar of uh, an economy of 150 million people relations with Europe and uh, the US are in an awful shape. It's all very sad. It's it's a huge
0: loss of opportunity. Yes, and there was what you might say, a tremendous stock of artistic sophistication, human capital, scientific knowledge that could have been redeployed. Absolutely. But when, but when you talk about America being in the dance, the people who experienced the dread of the Bay of Pigs are the people who went and did Ukraine. I'm talking about not the same human beings, but Daniel Ellsberg could have told you how daunting and frightening the Bay of Pigs experience was in Cuba, right off our beachhead. We did something like that. We almost destroyed the world over it. And, And then we can't
1: understand why China's not thrilled to have US troops circling China, circling the South China Sea, why we openly talk about the Quad countries, uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, India, uh, as uh, the protection against China. Look at a map. Would you like to be encircled that way? I wouldn't. Uh, and so when we create this kind of uh, uh, direct threat, and then we say to the other side, why are you worried? Uh, you know, we're not a threat, we're peace loving people. We just want to have troops all around you. Uh, It's not viewed with such equanimity from the other side. And like you say, uh, we should reflect how the United States reacted to uh, the uh, uh, Cuba-Soviet alliance that uh, started to take shape in 1960, almost led to the end of the world in 1962, and till today drives our politics even today, we can't find a way out of this mess, and it's used for uh, domestic political red meat to win votes in Florida to be as uh, hostile to normalization with Cuba as possible. Yeah.
0: Last thought going back to this question of how U.S. elites and governments neglected to support American people in the Uh, onset of globalization, development of China, and automation. We have a situation now where I believe that Trump capitalized on that woundedness. But a lot of the things that we've been fighting with China about have to do with intellectual property rights, pharmaceutical rights, access to financial markets. These are all the high margin services now picking a fight. These are companies who've probably been violated because they did a foreign direct investment and then they watched factories like theirs being replicated rather than expanding the scale, which they thought was the original promise. This is some of the angst about the China 2025 program. But it looks to me like the wealthy and the powerful now have joined both parties, the demonization of China and Perhaps the fear in the Biden administration of not doing that, which you and I both think is ominous. But the fear of not doing that is that what you might call the general population, which was wounded by globalization, has been taught to blame the Chinese rather than their own leaders. And they fear losing control. You know, the Biden administration fears losing control of the House, the Senate, and perhaps the White House. How do we overcome that? How do we overcome the false consciousness of the general public about who's responsible that my Chinese ally pointed out when he said the Chinese were powerless to create the transformation within America? There are, of course,
1: many, many uh, deep currents of American politics, and the China issue is one of many. And to understand any of our dynamics uh, domestically, we have to uh, look uh, not only at foreign policy issues, but even more at uh, racial uh, divides and at uh, wealth divides. Uh, So uh, the the questions of America's plutocracy, the questions of uh, America's uh, tradition of white supremacy, and the questions of America's uh, tradition of foreign policy exceptionalism are all on the line right now. And so there's a lot of angst, anxiety, confusion, claims, and counterclaims. When it comes to China, it is certainly uh, the, the trigger of the current uh, phase of relations was China's breakthrough to becoming a, a high-tech, innovative country. And it was specifically the made-in-China 2025 program, uh, which was a pretty brash statement. I think, uh, you know, from a tactical point of view, I would not have suggested that China put it the way it did, but basically, China said, okay, here are the 10 top technologies, we're going to dominate them. Uh, You know, it, okay, if they had said, we're going to advance in them, it would have been tactically smarter. Uh, less hubris. Of course, we have our own hubris. We need to come in first. Uh, We're going to win the race to the moon and so forth. But the gist of it is straightforward in my view, which is that China said we're going to move to the forefront of key technologies, most of them uh, semiconductors, uh, advanced uh, transport, uh, precision medicine, precision agriculture, renewable energy, and so robotics, and so on. Good list, smart policies, uh, the right kind of innovation led development that China needed. Now, that scared the wits out of American policymakers, first of all, uh, and it also violated the implicit idea that American policymakers naively had about China because. Uh, it wasn't that uh, America said, well, they're going to become like us. What American policymakers believed is China would become uh, wealthier and uh, it would develop, but under the wing of the United States. We would be clearly in the technological lead. Uh, We would be organizing global principles, and there would be a place for China, just like there would be a place for the whole world. In development, so it was a America-led mindset, and it was used to be called the flying geese model of uh, development that uh, Japan propounded. We'd be the goose in front; uh, we would always be in the lead technology. And then China started saying, "No, you know, we're gonna we're gonna innovate," and that is really the trigger to all of this now, which is hell no and you're cheating, and we've got to stop you, and this is a grave threat. And of course, it also gets implicated in the integration of AI and uh, semiconductors and everything else into uh, I- I- into the military sphere, into the security sphere, into the surveillance and cyber uh, uh, cyber warfare sphere. So that's a lot of the problem, which is that our semi-crazed policymakers view all of this not just in the lens of economic competition, but in the lens of uh, of uh, military dominance, which is again a little bit boring, little bit predictable and very dangerous uh, to have a mindset uh, the way that our policymakers do. That's what's going on right now. This is a a war of technology, they think now. As, as an economist, it's all mind-boggling to me because in economic think, technology is the way we do things, the way we solve problems, the way we overcome climate change, the way we stop poverty, uh, the way we treat people uh, for health. It's not a general saying, my God, if we don't have the best autonomous weapons that can murder other people with AI, we've got to stop China. So. The idea that it's all a technology battle is wrong, dangerous, uh, zero sum at best, but negative sum in reality. But that's really what we're up against right now. And that's why the real battle for the moment is America trying to stop uh, the advanced microchips from going to China. I'm almost sure. I'm not absolutely sure because I'm I'm not at the cutting edge knowledge of this. But my guess is that this is a two or three year workaround hindrance for China, not some existential threat. China now has thousands of semiconductor companies uh, that are being absolutely uh, showered with cash to figure out how to make small nanometer uh, microcircuits and they're good and they're smart and my guess is they'll figure out how to do it uh, and then they'll get on with the making low-cost phones again and 5g systems and and so on but it would be so much better if we were recognizing that this doesn't have to be a war to the death and god forbid that it becomes one but rather an opportunity actually to decarbonize our energy systems solve problems of transport and mobility, uh, help poor people get educations. If we thought about it in those terms, uh, we'd come to a very, very different perspective and a new kind of foreign policy.
0: Yeah, well, I can only imagine that in the heavens, Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, is just shaking his head at both sides (laughs) for the provocation of China 2025 and the reaction. It's not what he recommended in his book. It's yeah, exactly. like none of us are reading it. It's not quite what Deng Xiaoping
1: recommended either. Uh, it, uh, I think it was a a, a little bit uh, tactical misstep, but uh, truly, even with tactical missteps, you know, if in th- 1434 they stopped the fleet, maybe in uh, in in. Uh, In 1434 maybe in 1450 they could have revised it again revived it again you don't go down a path to destruction because of a of a misstep or a complication you try to solve the problem
0: yes well how would i say jeff i've admired you ever since being a kid in detroit today's conversation did nothing but increase that this was very, very facile, vital, deep, thoughtful. When I think about having children and grandchildren, I think about who are the beacons that give me a reason for thinking that we might deliver them a better world. And you, you're right at the masthead.
1: Well, you're, you're, you're doing a great job and uh, INET is so important uh, in this also because it's the thinking that we need to make the world right. So let me congratulate you on that. So
0: happy to be with you today. I'm happy to be with you too. Thanks for being here and uh, I'll look forward to our next chapter. And uh, encourage everybody to stay we'll do very it again close. soon. Stay close. Great. Thank you. Thank, thanks so much. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org.
1: And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it and reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it and i'll stand on the ocean until i start sinking
0: but i'll know my song well before i start singing